right. Well, we are ready for the, the next part of our series, and I'll begin with this. I hope that you are being stretched and challenged uh, so far in what we've looked at in these first few weeks of Seeking Shalom and the study we're doing. I trust that those of you who are doing the, the group experience, the class, that by now the wheels are starting to turn a little bit. That'd be good. Um, judging by some of the feedback and comments that I got, that's happening. So that's good. And, and I want to say this again. It's 100% okay to push back or to disagree respectfully. I realize that with a lot of this, essentially what we're arguing for is a little bit of nuance. And apparently that is not something, just think about our broader culture, that the world has a lot of use for these days. So we just keep coming back to this and we're going to be fine. Um, I, I've tried to be very open with you that I'm I'm right here with you, learning alongside of you. Um, I'm not going to get it all right. There's probably stuff I'm going to say today, parts of it that are wrong. Now, I don't know which parts those are going to be, so that's up to you to help me figure out. But, but again, this stuff, is, it's, it's challenging, and it's, it's hard work. And it requires that we confront some of our our biases or perspectives that, that we have or assumptions we may not even be aware of. And so part of this requires that we kind of suspend our disbelief for a little bit to venture into some new territory. But yeah, of course, it's a little bit uncomfortable. And anytime you learn something new, it feels foreign. So I just want to encourage you to keep being open, keep being curious. And let me just add, if something like bugs you, or offends you, or kind of pushes your buttons a little bit, I would just encourage you to sit with that a little bit longer than you want to. Um, that maybe resist the urge to make that tension just, just go away. I think Joy Rediger did a great job last week of challenging us just to pause when we feel that tension, to invite God into that. God, what are you trying to teach me? Are there things that I need to unlearn or uh, new perspectives? As always, growth in any area of life, you're adults, you know this, it requires some discomfort. Again, I want to remind us that the goal in this is not to be right or arrive at the, quote, right answers. All we're trying to do is move toward healthier. So I hope that frees us up. We just want to have a little bit healthier understanding, a little bit healthier approach. We've also been learning in this series that our language matters. Um, our language reveals, sometimes without our really knowing it, it reveals our assumptions, and it can reveal some biases or, or things like that that we have. I mean, like if I was talking to you guys and I was talking about another group or a minority or um, someone different than me in some regard, whether it's race or gender or class or whatever, and if I said, da 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 those people, you might pick up on that, right? Especially if I said it like, those people. Suddenly, I have just revealed something about myself that maybe I need to grow in or uh, is not healthy. I confess this, and this is really embarrassing, uh, especially because it just happened like a month ago. Yeah, I'll tell you. <laughs> I just said that. <laughs> 
um, I was talking to someone about someone else. And you know when you're trying to describe someone and trying to identify the person. And at some point, I was like, okay, well, this other person, so-and-so, is racially, and I use the term mixed, mixed, which I know some of you go, okay, and some of you are like, cringe city, okay? And this other person very kindly said, just like didn't even, just kind of said, yes, biracial, kind of corrected me, right? And I was like, yeah. And I started thinking about that language about another person being mixed. And I don't know where I got that from. I'm sure I heard it in culture, my parents, or I don't blame them, but growing up or whatever. But as I sat with that, I was like, that kind of implies... um, the grossest example is that's how we talk about like a purebred dog versus like a mixed breed, by which we mean something less. And so obviously that can be dehumanizing when applied to another person. Also, it does imply that I'm like pure something, white or whatever. Um, never mind the fact that I'm of European descent and I'm like 50 different things or whatever. The point is I went from really to, oh, yeah, that does kind of make sense to, I can't believe I ever said that, right? I can't, that's embarrassing. Uh, my point is, um, no one is more of a know-it-all than someone who just learned something like five minutes ago. So that's me. <laughs> Our language is revealing. That's all I'm saying. And in the same way, how we talk about people in material poverty Even that's intentional, right, to suggest there's other forms of poverty. How we talk about folks in material poverty and how we approach them, um, it says a lot about us. Our language also doesn't just reveal our biases lurking beneath the surface. It does more than that. It's actually more powerful than that. Our language also shapes. Our language reinforces how we see ourselves, how we see other people, how we view our work in the world and what it is we're doing when we show up. For example, um, let's say that I, as a pastor, I'm talking to you and talking about what I do for work and I make some kind of offhanded, innocuous comment about how I'm called to, quote, full-time ministry. Well, what have I just revealed in that comment? I've revealed that I live with a split, sacred, secular worldview, for one, where some jobs are holy and others are not, or some things are sacred and other things are not sacred, which, by the way, is false. So I've revealed something about myself, a blind spot. But even more than that, and probably even worse, um, if you hear me say that as someone in a position of spiritual authority, and then you, as a school teacher, or as a business person, or a stay-at-home parent, uh, you could hear that false distinction and think, oh, Yeah, well, I guess I'm not called. You see how that reinforces? I'm not called to full-time ministry. My job is something less. I just work for money or some less noble purpose. And, of course, the truth is, by the way, not the sermon point, but we are all called to full-time ministry wherever we are, in our, our families, our work, our relationships, our neighborhood, our community. So our language really does go a long way in shaping how we view ourselves, how we see other people, how we come to understand our purpose and what it is we're doing. So with that said, I would like us to examine another particular phrase or metaphor that Christians commonly use. 
You actually hear this all the time. Uh, you've heard it before. And it's this idea that we are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus to our neighbors, to those in material need, to the world. And so you hear this sentiment again pretty often. I, I've certainly said it. I'll, I'll say it again. That we are supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus, which I think is meant to help motivate us to go out into the world and, and to serve others in Jesus' name. It's this idea that we represent God. We're to put God on display, that people, you, you, you can't actually see God, but you can see me. I can see you. And so we're to make the love and the compassion of God tangible and visible and real, to which I would say yes. Yes, of course. Let's do more of that. But when we talk about, in the case of coming alongside of, of, of the material poor, and when we operate primarily out of that belief that when we show up, when we serve, when we give, that we are being the hands and feet of Jesus, my question is, what might that language reveal? What might it reinforce? And I'll give you a hint. It's positive and negative. Obviously, in this, there's a really strong like, sense of purpose and meaning and like a like, I'm supposed to go out and be Jesus, that's a pretty high bar, right? And so, yeah, that's going to motivate me to maybe do some things left to my own devices I wouldn't do. It might motivate me to give or to, to serve or to invest my energy, and all that's great. But are there ways that this shapes, it reinforces some of our understanding, some of our approaches to poverty? And again, we pick up on these things. We inherit them from who knows where. But are there ways that this is actually not very helpful, that may actually be harmful to ourselves or to those we're trying to help. So that's what we're going to look at for a few minutes this morning. Why don't we start with Scripture? What does the Bible say about this? And by the way, as Christians, that's pretty much always a good place to begin uh, with any question. To the best of my knowledge, the Bible never actually says anything quite like this. There is no verse that says, go, be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. Now, there is one New Testament reference that gets the closest, but as we'll see, it's not quite talking about the same thing that we mean when we use this phrase. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ. Oh, there it is, right? And each one of you is a part of it. But if you look at this passage in context, and it's a whole paragraph, in context, it's actually not about going and serving out there in the world. Paul is talking about, what's he talking about? The church. This is his, one of his primary metaphors for us, a gathering like this of people who've come together in Jesus' name. So he's talking about the church as the body of Christ. And what he's doing in context is he's using this picture, this metaphor, addressing a particular church in Corinth where apparently Christians were fighting with each other and like getting jealous. And so you'll have to, I guess, use your imagination for that one. But So he's, he's writing uh, to get them to see their unity. That's the point of this metaphor. It's, it's about unity in Christ. To help them understand that the church as the body of Christ, he has one body, 
It's what? And so he's saying in the context of our life together as Christians, how this plays out is we each have different gifts and abilities. We have different roles to play. Just like the physical body has many parts with different functions, we too have different roles to play as members of the one body of Christ. So what this means is Paul is not saying you are the hands and feet of Jesus as much as he's saying, listen, if you look around and you're, you're trying to figure out where you fit in the body of Christ, don't get all bent out of shape because you're like the elbow and someone else is the voice, right, with a, like a microphone. You know, why do I have to be the heel or whatever? Why can't I have the gift that that person has over there? And so he's simply saying that, that no gift and therefore no individual is more important than another. So the point in 1 Corinthians 12 is that we all have a part in the body of Christ. This is an all-skate event. So, important, not quite what we mean when we talk about going out in the world and being the hands and feet of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean this isn't true to some extent. It's just that we arrive at this truth not from a particular verse. We actually get to this from kind of zooming out and looking at the, the arc of the New Testament and God's plan and work through Jesus, looking at that as a whole. I would argue this metaphor comes to us primarily as like a universal implication of a, a great big theological idea that Jesus became incarnate, that Jesus became human. John 1.14 in the message translation says, the word, that's another name for Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And so it's this idea that God, who knows no before, no after, was present at creation. Like the one in whom, through whom, all things were created showed up. God in Jesus entered our world, became human, became one of us, flesh and blood. God lived among us. Well, you keep reading and you find that the, the risen Jesus, before his ascension, he empowered his disciples to then basically carry on his work like he would do if he were to continue being physically present in the same way among us. And so he sends us out to essentially embody who he is uh, to the world. We know from places like Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Meaning, of course, God invites us to partner with him in his work in the world. We're invited to co-create with God. We began this series with this idea, what's the big picture? The big picture is that God's dream, his goal for the world, for creation, uh, is nothing less than the renewal of all things. This biblical word for it is, is the word shalom. It's peace. It's wholeness. It's everything in its right place. It's what we might call human flourishing for the glory of God. And so, of course, Jesus invites us to, to pray and to work uh, so that God's will is done more and more on earth like it's done in heaven. Well, that includes everything, doesn't it? Your life, 
my life, relationships, our work, our neighborhoods, our city. In fact, nothing is beyond the scope of his redemptive plan of renewal and restoration. So what an incredible privilege. What a huge responsibility to be invited into. So that's part of what we mean, of course, when we talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus. Teresa of Avila, centuries ago, said it really beautifully. She says, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Well, that is a profound, important truth that we do as Jesus followers represent. Oh, represent is what that word means. Um, And the crazy thing, and that's already pretty mind-blowing, the crazy thing is Jesus seems to actually think we can do this. With his help, of course. So, everyone with me so far? There's a lot that I want to affirm, a lot that we hold on to with this. But, and if you know me at all, you sense there's a giant butt heading your way. (laughs) But, and remember what I said earlier about nuance and can we hold two things in tension at the same time. When it comes to showing compassion to the materially poor, the marginalized, the less fortunate, this, being the hands and feet of Jesus, is not actually how Jesus talks about us. It's actually not what's really happening in that moment. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 25. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus doesn't say, when you go out and serve, when you go show compassion to others, You're being my hands and my feet. That's not what he says. In fact, worse than that, he flips that whole idea on its head and says something no one was expecting. Matthew 25, verse 31. And I'm trying to remember if I've ever talked about this. And I, it seems like a really important one to skip. So hopefully I have. Uh, (laughs) Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So right away, Jesus is talking about his eventual return. And he says, when I come back, and I am coming back, there's going to be some sort of judgment. In other words... Everyone is not going to get a participation trophy. Everyone will not be treated the same. And so he's saying this in kind of his his rabbinic way. He says, we're going to be judged at some level, in some way at the end. To which we would ask, judged according to what? Because that seems like that would be helpful information. Uh, If you're here and you're a student, or if you can remember back that far, At some point, you have had a a teacher, you've had a professor, essentially say, class, listen up, this, this, 
might be on the test, wink, wink. And what did you do? You stopped your doodling, you stopped your daydreaming, and just for a second you perked up and, and suddenly you're taking notes. And now all of a sudden you have the highlighter out and you're putting stars and you're test, test, you know, study this. Well, that's what's happening here. Jesus goes on to explain what is going to be on the final exam. So, highlighters out. Verse 34. Then the king, that's Jesus, will say to those on his right, and this is the side that you want to be on, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? They're thinking, we never saw you in need. I mean, if, if we had, first of all, that would have been shocking because you're the Messiah, you're the Lord. And if we had seen that, we would have been first in line to do something about your need because there's no way we're letting you suffer. Problem is, we don't remember doing it. Like, when did you say again all this stuff supposedly happened? He goes on. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. In other words, when you showed compassion, when you showed up for that other person, you thought at the time you were just doing it for them, and that was the end of it. But you were actually doing it for me. I was actually present somehow in and through this other person. So like Jesus in some kind of disguise. This is like, this is like the ultimate undercover boss, if you ask me. And so, <laughs> thank you. Uh, and so they're probably thinking, oh, we had no idea when we did that, that that it was way bigger, that that was actually happening. And, and Jesus is like, I know, that's, what I'm, that's why I'm telling you, so that now you know. So that's group one. And it's really good news for them. Their reward is they inherit uh, the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus then shifts to, on the other hand, literally, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. So similar pattern, but different choices, and therefore a very different response, very different consequences. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, Jesus obviously says some hard things here, doesn't he? This raises some questions, uh, especially at the end here. A really fun one is, hold up, hold up, what about the gospel? And like 
believing in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, as the only thing I need to do to gain eternal life. There's no mention of that here at all. We'll have to get to that another time. But the short answer is that faith, believing in Jesus, believing Jesus is Lord. Faith, and then over here, works, like doing stuff in his name. That for Jesus, those two things go together far more than we as children of the Reformation have ears to hear. Uh, in many ways, I would argue the Reformation of the 16th century was an overcorrection, right, from the works, pure works-based righteousness that the Catholic Church was teaching at the time. And so the pendulum was over here, it swings all the, all the way over here, and you get, you get the rest. Now, don't worry if you didn't follow that. That was basically me just nerding out a little bit over church history. So, But the main point... What Jesus is getting at here in Matthew chapter 25, you see what he's doing? He's taking our notion of being the hands and feet of Jesus, and he flips it. His point is not that the church is being Jesus to those experiencing oppression or material need. Rather, the church meets Jesus in the presence of those experiencing material need. And so it's not primarily about being Jesus to others, although there's a place for that, as much as what he's talking about here, it's about encountering Jesus in the poor, in the marginalized, and overlooked. And that might not sound like a big distinction, but there is a world of difference between those two postures. And again, I'm sorry to be a broken record, not really, but... Our language shapes, then, how we see ourselves. It reinforces, it, it, it determines our approach in, in many ways, how we show up and the work that we're doing. This or this can become the foundation for how we uh, show up in our, in our work in the world. It determines, it determines our approach. And so I think what can happen if we're not careful with this we all know, we've all seen this, there are lots of good Christians, right, motivated by this noble mission to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and they have good hearts who then set out in their neighborhoods, in their communities to, to, to be Jesus to those in material need. They, we, have great intentions and great hearts, and I'm not questioning that at all. But we've sometimes acted in ways that aren't helpful or that aren't dignifying to those we're serving. And we may even have caused some harm inadvertently in the process. At the very least, we haven't always approached this in ways that lead to healthy, meaningful, long-term engagement. And so what would it mean for you as a Christian to go into your neighborhood or let's say you're interacting, talking with someone who's materially poor? What would it mean for you to seek to Find Jesus in this other person rather than just trying to be Jesus to someone else. What would change? I would argue quite a bit. Because when you see this distinction and you really sit with it and you really allow yourself to be formed by what Jesus says instead, I think this has the potential, doesn't guarantee anything, but it has the potential to completely change how we think about what we're doing when we're serving the material, materially poor or marginalized. And therefore, the potential to begin to 
reshape, reform how we go about this work. And so before we land on some implications, I just want you to think with me before I give you some answers, okay? What happens when we shift our posture from being Jesus to encountering, meeting Jesus in others? I'm, I'm actually going to, in a second, ask you for real, not rhetorically. Okay, so, I mean, we're here. We might as well do some work, right? And remember, this is not Matt's idea. This is Jesus' idea. We got this from him. Maybe this will help. I'll, I'll try to give you a more specific, simple example. Uh, as you may know, uh, over the past several months, we've been invited to help with some of the community meals in Avondale neighborhood or in uh, industry neighborhood and so on. So just imagine that we have one coming up and that you have signed up, so you're on the list, and you show up and you know your job, you're going to be serving food and maybe cleaning up afterward and hopefully in the process, having conversations, interacting with some folks in the neighborhood, getting to know some people better. So with that example, what's one way this shift in posture from being to encountering Jesus might change? How might your perspective or your attitude change? What might change about your approach? So we're all friends here. Just let's shout some things out. It doesn't have to be profound. But what comes to mind? That's great. I'm looking to learn something. Yeah. Develop relationships. There's a shift there, isn't there? That's great. Find out what their gifts are. Dignify. Yeah, I think it's a lot more dignifying potentially. Find something new. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You pretty much got all mine. There's a couple more. Um, let me give you a few implications, and I, I'm not even totally happy with the wording of these. They all overlap, and I'm kind of saying the same thing in different ways. But four things really quickly. First of all, can you see how if your goal is to encounter Jesus and not just be Jesus, how that has the potential to fundamentally kind of elevate relationship over transaction. Yeah, suddenly I'm not just there to give something. I'm not just there on like a good deed mission. In fact, it's really not about what I'm even doing to help someone in need, although there's a place for that. If before I was approaching someone primarily through the lens of like pity, well, now that's shifted and it's not that. Um, I think one of the common mistakes that, that many of us make in this work is basically seeing people, seeing someone in material poverty primarily through the lens of what they lack. You don't have this or this or this. I have extra and so here. Or we see people primarily through the lens of a problem. There's addiction, there's unemployment, whatever the issue is. Problem identified, now here's a program or here's a solution. And what do we do? Transaction complete until next time. And then we do it all again. And we wonder why the interaction feels a bit one-sided. 
or why we get frustrated when the, the programs or the money or the strategy or whatever doesn't seem to move the needle. Again, a lot of this we can just simply put ourselves in someone else's shoes. I know that I certainly would not enjoy it if someone interacted with me primarily through the lens of what I lack or my problem. It's not, as someone said over here, that's not very dignifying. But what if instead of that, if I genuinely believe, as Jesus insists, that what's actually happening is I'm encountering Jesus in this other person? Wow, suddenly I'm not there just to be on the giving end of another transaction. Now it's about getting to know someone. It's about learning their story. It's about honoring their life and their experience. What happens is the power dynamics, the power imbalance, where in the old way I'm, I'm going to be Jesus, well, that kind of puts me up here being Jesus to people who are down here. That dynamic is, at the very least, neutralized, if not inverted, which wouldn't that be just like Jesus to do something like that? Yeah, Jesus' approach is so much more dignifying. No one wants to be someone's special project. No one wants to be fixed. Um, you know, one of the things I keep hearing in this, again and again, and, and what our friends who are doing this work, we had Joy, and you think of, of Sean Duncan, or, or Neil's been here, folks living and working in uh, these neighborhoods to the south, to the south of us, um, is the role of friendship. Like, it just keeps coming back to that, like relationship, relationship. It's about genuine friendship. If I genuinely believe I'm encountering Jesus in the, the, the materially poor, the marginalized, well, man, that's about getting to know someone, honoring them in their life and their experience. I would suggest this change in posture also leads to a increased humility. For starters, I'm no longer Jesus in the relational equation. So that helps. Uh, but suddenly, I'm relieved from the burden of having to have all the answers, which is hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for us, especially if you do have a relevant area of expertise. Um, so easy to say, well, here's what you need. Here's what you should do. I know. I know. And as we've been talking about, remember a few weeks ago, chronic versus crisis, and how chronic has a, is an overlapping, complex system of all kinds of, of, of issues. So it leads to greater humility, because you don't live there, right? I don't have answers for them any more than, than I have answers for the problems in your neighborhood not living there personally. So don't assume you know what's best. I think this leads to a, a much greater, as Debbie said, listening posture. Oh, if I'm encountering Jesus, maybe Jesus has something to teach me through this other person. And we begin to realize that there are actually different kinds of poverty. Um, just like there's different kinds of intelligence, right? Book smart and, you know, someone who's really book smart but has no common sense. There's street smart. There's relational intelligence. There's other kinds of poverty, I mean, we may get to this here in the next couple of weeks. I mean, Jesus says, I'll give you one form of poverty. Be careful that you don't gain the whole world. 
and lose your soul. So that would be a spiritual form of poverty. I think what happens um, when we're trying to be Jesus, it puts us in the role of Savior. And then it puts our neighbor in the role of the lost, the needy, the weak, or whatever. And we end up showing up, and we, we have these kind of blind spots. We don't see the privilege and the power that we carry into these places. So all I'm saying is these kinds of conversations with people who have different perspectives, it's, it's really, really eye-opening. Um, I'm going to share a really probably controversial example, but just to illustrate what I mean. Um, a couple years ago, remember when the jail was moving from downtown, or they were talking about moving it to Wilson Middle School? I didn't have much of an opinion on that. I mean, I'm like, well, I mean, I guess it'd be nice if it wasn't in downtown. I do know I don't want it in the, next to my house. I do know that, and I'll sign whatever you want me to sign to keep that from happening. Um, but I remember a lot of our friends on the south side who were living in Avondale or, or Thomas Park or, or industry had a really strong opinion based on the people they were interacting with. And apparently there were issues about transportation and access, and they had a whole, a whole thing. And I, you know, I'm sorry to say at the time I didn't invest into learning more. I just know they were seeing that from a different angle than I was because it affected them and their community at some level more. So this is where we listen and we learn. And um, you talk to, to folks like, like Neil, um, you might not agree with him, right? But he's got a different perspective on the access to health care and transportation issues and where tax dollars get funneled to what schools and, and on and on and on. And the reason I'm not aware of that, and this is a little bit painful, is because the system works great for me. I got no issues. I have no access problems. And so again, we begin to learn it takes humility. I also, also want to add with this something Sean said at the workshop a couple weeks ago. And I'll try to, he said it great. It was perfect. He said, essentially the, the great commission, you know, go into all the world and make disciples, like go get out there. That the great commission doesn't give us an excuse to show up uninvited. And I just sat with that and thought, yeah. I don't want you showing up uninvited on my front door. Right? And so again, the role of invitation, which presumes, presupposes relationship and knowing someone else. Or how about this one? If we're focusing on encountering Jesus versus being Jesus, suddenly... We are freed up to be less focused on being productive. How hard is this for us? I mean, that's like how we measure everything. What are we accomplishing? What are we doing? What do we have to show for our work? I mean, that's how we think about just many things. And so we then think in terms of programs. We go straight to activities or straight to money. And of course, there's a place for all of those things. I'm just saying it's down the road. We have such a hard time doing this. Do you know why we have a hard time doing this? Because we think we're Jesus in the equation. So yeah, let's get some stuff done, right? It's where we get the phrase savior complex, where I got to show up and fix everything 
and do and accomplish. And then we end up doing things for people they could, if empowered, do for themselves and have a whole lot more dignity. One of the things that's been interesting and, and difficult to learn, I think back six or seven years ago, we started our partnership with Food for the Hungry in Nicaragua. And so we show up, if you've ever been on a mission trip, usually you do stuff. You build a church, you build a school, you do some project, you take pictures, and you come back and you tell everybody, look what we did. And we've, we're just beginning this partnership with Calatu, this village in Nicaragua. And yes, we all collectively had provided them a, a special project fund, which they were directing, they were owning, they were in charge, and that's what they said their needs were. And they wanted to build a restroom for the little, tiny little elementary school in the village. And so we show up, and they have supplies, and, and there's people there, and everybody's kind of watching, and we're like, okay, I guess it's time to get to work. Let's build this, I mean, I said restroom, picture like an outhouse. Uh, let's build this outhouse type structure. And we had shovels, and we had the whole thing, and we worked for about 32 minutes. And they said, stop, you're done. I mean, we dug a little, we dug like a hole. And that was it. And so that, that's not why you're here. You're not here just to, like, be productive and do stuff for us. We actually have to own this, and we have to maintain it and, and keep it up. And so what they were interested in is getting to know us and building these relationships. I think one of the nice things that happens when we let go of just be productive, be productive, be productive is suddenly we are much less prone to burnout because the work is actually, like, never done, this side of, like, the kingdom of God coming fully. Um, Mother Teresa, she wrestled with her faith. We know that now. Uh, she never seemed to get burnt out in the face of endless need. Why? One reason is because I think she genuinely believed she was encountering Jesus in the lepers, in the sick. She wasn't trying to be Jesus. I love how Henry Nouwen puts it. He says, more and more, and by the way, this quote, is, it gets more profound as it goes on. More and more, the desire grows in me simply to walk around, greet people, enter their homes, sit on their doorsteps, play ball, throw water, and be known as someone who wants to live with them. It is a privilege to have the time to practice the simple ministry of presence. Still, it is not as simple as it seems. My own desire to be useful to do something significant or to be a part of some impressive project is so strong that soon my time is taken up by meetings, conferences, study groups, and workshops that prevent me from walking the streets. It is difficult not to have plans, not to organize people around an urgent cause, and not to feel you are working directly for social progress. But I wonder more and more if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories and tell your own, to let them know with words, handshakes, and hugs that you do not simply like them, but truly love them. Yes, results matter. I mean, the point is like long-term, sustainable, lasting impact. It's just that we know, and we've learned from our friends, this takes a long time. One of Sean's side comments was, this work happens at the pace of trust, relational trust. And so, again, this is years, decades, at some level, generational. It takes a, a long time and requires a high degree of genuine relationship. 
And then finally, this shift in posture reminds us that Jesus is already there. If I'm being Jesus, you realize what you're saying. You're kind of implying that Jesus isn't there until I show up. So I'm bringing Jesus, right? Which, of course, that's ridiculous. Of course, Jesus is already there working, which means I'm not bringing God somewhere that he's not. Dr. Bob Lupton, the, the author of Toxic Charity and the, the founder of the organization we're getting Seeking Shalom from, in week two of our class, um, his testimony talks about one of, the, one of his biggest learnings uh, was the, this realization in getting to know people in material poverty. He said, I need them. I now realize I need them more than they need me. And I, that like struck me because that's very easy to affirm, but I don't know if I actually believe that. I don't know if I actually deep down think that's true. I, I think it's a foreign idea to, to many of us. Um, and then he goes on, he says this, I had the idea that I was bringing the light of the gospel into the darkness of the ghetto only to discover over time that God had already beat me to it. He was already there. So my job, your job, is not to bring Jesus somehow, somewhere where he's not. This invitation here is to a, a more thoughtful posture. And it's one that, that seeks to honor and discern the presence of Jesus in those who are experiencing oppression. So big idea. When serving those experiencing oppression, injustice, and poverty, we are not being Jesus to them. We are encountering Jesus in them. It leads to a different way of showing up it leads to some very different forms of engagement, and I think ones that are healthier. Are they perfect? No, but healthier. It leads to relationship. We come back to that again and again over transaction. Certainly over just addressing symptoms, which is what charity often does of poverty. It leads to much greater humility. I'm there to listen. I actually believe I'm not just giving you, but I have something to receive. Um, to learn from you. It frees us up from being so obsessed with being productive and being able to say, look what we did, and there's that. Um, and it's also, this is freeing for me. Jesus is already there. He's already at work. My job, actually, is not to bring him, but to meet him, encounter him in others. With that, would you stand with me and we'll pray? Uh, Father, as we, we've prayed a lot these last few weeks, um, help us to live a little more into this tension. Uh, we know you call us to make a difference in the world, to be a light, to be salt, to be all those things. Now, for some reason, in your wisdom, you have chosen us to make you visible, real. But God, thank you for this reminder. Um, but there's a lot more happening that we actually have the opportunity to encounter you, Jesus, in the poor, materially poor, the, the, the marginalized, the overlooked. 
Lord, help us to, again, sit with this tension and just really wrestle with what does that mean to build genuine friendship? To ask hard questions about our own proximity, myself included, to people who are different, people who are um, struggling with, with poverty. Lord, give us humility. Give us curiosity. Um, I pray that in the next week or two, in the near future, that we could have an experience with someone other than us, different than us, and that you would bring this to mind by your spirit, that we'd be consciously aware that in this moment, in this conversation, we're encountering Jesus, that our eyes would be opened and that we'd just pay attention to what shifts within us, what we think we're doing. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thanks so much for worshiping with us. I hope you all have a great week, and we'll see you next time for the next part of Seeking Shalom.